Family systems theory was developed by a guy named Murray Bowen back in the early 1950s. major premise? Families are a physical unit, yes, of course, but they're also an emotional unit. Families go on vacation together, they ride in the same car together, you may even be riding in the same car together right now, but they also learn to deal with emotions the same way. learn to communicate the same way or learn to react to conflict the same way. Bowen was the first one to see this, that a lot of times our individual patterns of living come from the people that raised us. And even if we don't get along with our families of origin and we react against them, choose to move 2,000 miles away from them, our reactions are still dependent upon them. They still fit the only patterns we know. It's no surprise then that the silver bullet in Bowen's theory, you know, the, the work that you have to commit yourself to for the rest of your life, is what he calls differentiation. Learning to become an individual who thinks and feels for themselves. And no matter how great a family is, no matter how connected your family is, no matter how many, you know, heart to hearts you have on a weekly basis. There's just certain codes of conduct, certain delusional beliefs, certain bits of nonsense that you just absorb just by the fact of being a part of the family you're a part of. I like Bowen theory because it takes a different tack on what we tend to think makes families dysfunctional. If you visit any news source you like today or, or any religious blog that talks about family life or marriage, and usually, the root of all problems is disconnection. Just for an example, uh, last week and another weekends on, on the site, I mentioned an Atlantic article about these parents who are starting to use these business productivity apps uh, like Slack in the home. And they want to make their lives and their kids' lives more efficient. And so the implicit answer in an article like this to the problem is that because parents are turning their families into small businesses, we need to connect more. We need to get in touch more, throw the baseball more, do family stuff more. Disconnection is the problem, and then the solution is more connection. And some of this is totally true. But what Bowen said was different. According to him, no matter how much you do throw or don't throw the baseball with Jimmy, the problem is not your lack of investment in your families, but it's your overinvestment in them. We get enmeshed with our families. We care too much. We pour all our longings and fears, all of our expectations into them. And then from that investment comes all kinds of unwanted pressure and eventually suffering. So in other words, thinking religiously, our families can sometimes feel like the ever-present, always exacting presence of religious law or God's law. No matter where we turn, no matter what 
decisions we make as individuals, there they are, our family, in our heads, telling us how to stock the refrigerator, reprimanding us for being tardy, warning us about our parenting decisions. And it's all right there with us, no matter where we go. And of course, that's not the whole story. There is, of course, the better part. We have these deep abiding loyalties with our families. Because these people are also the people that know us best. And there's a ton of stories where oftentimes when we expect one thing to turn out a certain way, we get surprised by the opposite. We find deep, unwavering loyalty. We find reconciliation, forgiveness. <laughs> Who knows what can make us swell with anguish or total affection like our families. So as we were compiling uh, the family issue, which for much of the time we thought about calling the family issues issue, this is what we tried to cover. Family is a mixed bag where all too often God's gracious hand slips in, not only to keep us from killing each other, but also sometimes to give us a fresh start. This special episode of The Mocking Cast is a special glimpse into some of the themes we covered here, including sound bites from two of our interviews, one from education and parenting specialist Alfie Cohn, and then another from the writer of Silver Linings Playbook, a movie you may have seen. His name is Matthew Quick. I also got a chance to get some parenting advice from one of our best, Carrie Willard. Oh, and I'm Ethan Richardson, the editor of this magazine. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy it. If you don't have a copy of The Family Issue yet for some reason, or if your brother, your sister, your cousin, your auntie, your grandma, or your babysitter does not have a copy, um, you can amend that very quickly by going to magazine.embird.com, where you can also set up a subscription. All right, that's it. Giddy up. Hi, it's Alfie Cohn. Hey, it's Ethan. Can you hear me? Yes, now I can. Uh huh. Did you just hear from the nice lady that this call's being recorded? I did, and I knew that already. <laughs> um, how the, how are you doing? Doing fine, thanks. You know, I thought maybe it would be good just first off to, you probably have this, you know, written on the back of your hand at this point, but like just an introduction to sort of behaviorism and conditioning and Skinner and and how in the world behaviorism became a phenomenon of parenting books and, and teaching manuals in America. Well, in my book, Punished by Rewards, I spend a few pages to bring people up to speed on Skinnerian thinking and mm -hmm. the difference between classical and operant conditioning, in case we've forgotten it from Psych 101. What I'm <laughs> most interested in is what I call pop behaviorism, which mm -hmm. is not an academic theory, but it's application in everyday life that consists of saying, in effect, do this and you'll get that. This is a practice of trying to manipulate people with rewards. And it is pervasive in our workplaces, our schools, and our families. It's also based 
on a series of assumptions about um, human motivation and the nature of our psychological makeup. It assumes, among other things, that people would never do anything unless there was a reinforcer, or in common parlance, a reward in the balance. The strict behaviorists deny the very idea of intrinsic motivation, which refers to doing something because we find it personally fulfilling. Also wrapped up in both behaviorism and its pop version is the assumption that the only thing that matters, perhaps the only thing that's real, are observable, measurable actions. And to that extent, the subjective experience that informs our actions is pretty much wiped away. Mm. So when we're talking about work or school, for example, there's an assumption that we must break down tasks into little bitty pieces and feed them to people one at a time with constant evaluation and reinforcement for having behaved the way the more powerful people involved uh, would like us to. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what the pitfalls of a life that's driven by external motivators, um, whether at work or in family life or, um, or at school? The basic theory that I've just described is in the judgment of the vast majority of experts who study human psychology, a limited and limiting one, uh, mm. one that, that seriously misjudges how people do in fact act. It also seems myopic, to say the least, in dismissing human experience. But the practical uh, decision to use rewards to control people um, is problematic on several levels. Um, one is it violates what many of us on reflection would regard as um, our right to be consulted, um, to be involved in the decisions about what we do every day. Hmm. Re rewards like punishments are a way of doing things to people, underline to, as opposed to working with them, underline with. Hmm. Um, second, though, even if you don't find that um, form of dealing with folks problematic from a value position, it is not only ineffective in most cases but positively counterproductive. When you offer a reward for doing something, it changes the whole experience for the person who has been treated this way. The way that person looks at the task, the way that person looks at the individual who, who offered the reward, and the way that person looks at him or herself. So, Carrots like sticks um, tend to undermine the very things they were intended to promote. The one thing they can elicit if the reward or punishment is big enough and the likelihood is great enough of 
of its being extended is temporary compliance, but at mm. enormous cost. So um, literally hundreds of studies have found that the more you are rewarded for doing something, the more you are likely to lose interest in whatever you had to do to get the reward. So this will be in the family issue. And, and one of the things that I thought about, you know, in reading this book and, and also unconditional parenting is I'm sure you get this this um, this question often, um, either when you're speaking or doing a reading or what have you. But folks who say, you know, hey, you know, this is just the way the world works, you know, and, and if if I'm a parent, you know, and I don't give my kid a taste of of this, you know, carrot and stick world or this quid pro quo world, they're just going to crumble. They're going to be, you know, spoon fed at home and then not know that the real world is the world of getting a stick if you don't perform and, and getting a carrot if you do. This is exactly as persuasive as saying that because there are a lot of carcinogens in the environment, we have to be realistic and feed our children as many cancer-causing agents as possible while they're young. <laughs> I mean, right. it, I mean it, it, it is true that rewards and punishments along with competition, sexual harassment, bullying, and any number of other uh, abusive and appalling practices are widespread in our society. That provides exactly zero rationale for doing them to our children. This is a phenomenon I've come to call by the unlovely acronym BGUTI, capital B-G-U-T-I, <laughs> which stands for Better Get Used to It. It assumes that because pointless or harmful things may happen to children later, we must prepare them by doing pointless and unpleasant things to them now, which makes absolutely no mm -hmm. sense. That isn't to say that we shouldn't raise our children in a bubble so they don't know what might be coming should they enter into, for example, dysfunctional institutions or deal with unpleasant individuals. We should talk with them about this. We should help them develop strategies. And most of all, we should equip them with a sense of perspective so that they are able to critically analyze these practices and perhaps if they're in a position of authority someday, work to change these structures. The last thing we should do is immerse them in these counterproductive practices so that they come to believe there is no alternative. In your question, you talked about, I forget the word you used, but of something like, so I think it was spoon feeding them, you know, as, yeah. as if we are somehow coddling children by treating them with respect or mm. working with them to solve problems. But that's not true at all. The reality is that we want to help our kids become not only caring and compassionate, but also self-reliant, independent thinkers who are able to critically analyze what's going on. And that requires bringing them in on making decisions. It requires consulting them and providing guidance and doing all the other things that, that good parents do. It's not about denying the reality of unpleasant practices in our culture. It's about starting in the family to set an example of how people should be treated and 
giving children the wherewithal to stand against unfortunate practices uh, when they are in other environments. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, I think I think a lot of people read this and they think that you're just talking about discipline or you're just talking about in, in terms of school, you know, but it's so much broader than discipline, I think, what you're talking about. Where else might we see this dynamic at work, the allure of behaviorism or the allure of using external motivators for our children? Well, on on one level, this conversation is not just about discipline, even insofar as we're talking about parenting. It's about broader questions concerning how we understand our children and their motives and the way we relate to them. But if you're asking not just about levels of analysis in a given arena like the family, but asking about other arenas outside the family, Mm -hmm. then I tend to focus primarily on schools and workplaces as the other two Mm -hmm. besides looking at parenting. And in each case, um, rewards like punishments are employed by people with more power to elicit compliance from those who have less power. The stumbling block for most people is not seeing the parallels between families, school, and work. It's realizing that rewards are just as controlling and just as counterproductive as punishments are. That just because I offer you something you want, which might be a dollar, an A, or a good job for doing what I tell you, that doesn't mean that we're not still in the realm of what I call a, quote, doing to, unquote, interaction. Um, Mm -hmm. It's still problematic. And it would be true with relations among people in any other arena as well, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, one of the phrases you use is rewards rupture relationships. And I think a lot of people would say, like, you know, rewards or praise or giving giving children, a, you know, a nice compliment, a good job, those are ways to love a child or those are ways to sort of pour out affection on a child. But how is how is it? How is it that something like that could actually rupture a relationship? The key word is conditionality or contingency. If I tell you I love you and give you a big hug just because you're you, I have no objection to to that. Um, yeah. What makes a reward a reward is that there are strings attached. If yeah. I'm giving you a, attention, acknowledgement, approval, because you impressed me or pleased me, then we're not talking about affection. We're talking about using a child's dependence on a parent, Hmm. using an individual's need to be valued as a lever, as a way of getting that child to do what we want. And that is about as unloving as it gets. So it's important to realize that if I give you a doggy biscuit for having jumped through my hoops, that doesn't speak to what people, and especially children, need, which is to be 
loved and appreciated for who they are, not for whether they have pleased the person who's in a position to give them something they desire. And praise is just a verbal doggy biscuit. So mm. this gets to the, the central distinction that informs my work on parenting in particular, which is that it's not enough to love children. We have to love them unconditionally, which mm. is to say for who they are, not for what they do. The vast majority of resources for parents are about getting kids to do whatever the parent unilaterally wants the child to do. Whereas I take a step back and ask about whether the parent's desire is legitimate and really in the child's best interest. But I also mm -hmm. question the idea of love or motivation as a single entity that's on a continuum from little to a lot. Hmm. The idea being that we want kids to have more of this stuff called motivation, and our job is to give them more of this stuff called love. In both hmm. cases, the critical question is not how much, but what kind. More of extrinsic motivation, doing things for a reward, isn't just unhelpful. It actively undermines the intrinsic motivation that we should be helping them to nourish. And similarly, more conditional love and approval, where the kid has to earn our affection, is the exact opposite of what children need to flourish. Mm -hmm. A word that kind of fits with what you just said is the notion of control and that the allure of carrots and sticks and conditionality um, in parenting and elsewhere is connected to the allure of, I guess, the illusion of control. You know, the idea that, um, you know, if I utilize this technique, um, I feel I feel better about myself that I've been able to control this seemingly uncontrollable situation. And you talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, how we describe a good child versus a difficult child and how a good child is in this framework is actually just a controllable child, like a child that lays back. Um, yes, central to the whole idea of rewards like punishments is making people with less power do whatever you want them to do. So that's it's necessarily um, a, a controlling relationship. The behaviorist cynically assumes that control is inevitable in any uh, in any interaction between two beings and i i don't believe that there i think there yeah. are important distinctions in mm -hmm. in the ways of of approaching someone else even an infant that are more respectful and more concerned about what's in the the ultimate best interest uh, of that person and at the same time of course as adults dealing with children we are in the position of settling, setting an example, of modeling yeah. how you go about treating other people in your life. That's why we right. shouldn't be surprised to find that parents who spank their children are teaching them the powerful lesson that when you want to get someone less powerful than you to do what you want, you hurt them. Right. And that's a lesson that children often in, in, in traditional households often learn and put into practice that very afternoon if they're around a weaker peer. Um, mm. And then when 
when the children do exactly what they've been shown by their parents and are aggressive with, with other kids, we blame the child or blame the evil inherent in human nature or something rather than looking in the mirror. And sometimes we even then respond with even more punishment to the child, even though punishment is responsible for what we've just observed. But what is true of, of physical violence used on children in the name of discipline is true more broadly of forms of control that aren't always recognized as such, that are subtler, that include not only non-corporal punishment, but also rewards and praise. If the point is to get mindless obedience and using the levers that we have over children to make that happen, then we are setting an example in a very broad way of thinking about themselves, their relationships with others, thinking about the nature of love itself, which is sadly commingled with control very often. Yeah, um, very much so, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we may not be aware of the example that we're setting. We think we're just right. We think we're just taking a firm hand and teaching the child not to lie or hit his brother um, mm. or break his promises or whatever. But we're teaching yeah. much more than that. You know, one of the things that I I, I felt myself um, is that you know a lot of a lot of times the compulsion towards control is is often a direct uh, reaction to feelings of fear you know the fear of being out of control you know you reach for you know you reach for something when when you feel like you 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 don't have anything to grab onto and in line with that you know i was thinking what do you say to a parent who asks you or or an educator that responds you know gosh well if if i sort of resign this effort to control and I let them do what they find interesting, and I try to cultivate that. Well, what if what they find interesting is candy and TV and pornography and, you know, yeah, all of the bad right. things that, that I'm worried about? Well, the, the question is based on a premise that is really a false dichotomy. It says, on the one hand, there's traditional top-down power-based reward and punishment discipline where the parent imposes his or her will on the child, or, and this is seen as the only other alternative to that, because we don't know a third way, there is a hands-off, let the kid do whatever the hell he wants. And mm -hmm. I am decidedly not advocating for a laissez-faire or a permissive or uninvolved approach to parenting. It's very important to talk with kids about healthy eating or the effects of pornography or whatever it is we're afraid of, uh, as well as to set an example in our own lives and to solve problems when they come up in a hands-on way. The relevant distinction is not between a carrot-and-stick control of the kind that most parenting advisors are urging which includes conditional affection, or doing nothing. The, rather, the distinction is between a, what I'm calling, as my shorthand, a doing-to approach or a working-with approach. And the latter is much harder. It's, yeah. it's easier to do nothing and let your kid raise himself. And it's also easy to bear down on children, read them the riot act, and try to coerce them into obeying you. The hard yeah. 
road of parenting is one that is respectful and responsive, empathic and caring, involved to the extent it makes sense, and governed primarily by what's in the child's interest, not being governed by our own fears or our own agenda or our own history. What is really deeply unsettling to many people about this analysis is that it leads to our gulping and having to reconsider the way we were raised and taught rather than mindlessly reproducing sometimes dubious approaches to parenting with our own children. You know, it's it's so easy to point out the the sort how behaviorism may get the short-term result, but in the long run, it, it's devastating. But it's harder sometimes to conceptualize or even see what unconditional love looks like. Well, I'm not sure it's possible in a story to capture the idea of loving one's child unconditionally, in part because that's characterized in the negative, which is to say by the absence of attaching strings to our love. Mm. It's reflected Mm. in what we don't do. It looks like hugging a child and smiling and, and staying with him during tough times rather than sentencing him to time out, regardless of what's happened before. You can't come up with a story that or at least I can't, that that captures the idea of loving a child for who she is. It's much yeah. easier to point out how we continue to love a child for no damn good reason. Um, yeah, right. you know, yeah. um, now, there are aspects of the kind of parenting I recommend that do lend themselves to examples, such as giving children more say about what happens. Um, As as I like to point out, kids learn to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following Mm -hmm. directions. And so Mm -hmm. it's certainly possible to come up with examples of how we do more asking than telling, for example, in a way that's developmentally appropriate, fitted to the child's age. Um, And... Yeah, but but the idea of unconditionality itself is, is hard to say, here's what to right. do. family the family issue we've been joking could just be called the family issues issue because basically <laughs> every essay and interview has been about sort of family dysfunction and um sure and you know everyone has a story to tell in that regard but i'm just going to jump into my questions if that's sure. cool yeah totally. so if i'm thinking about the anatomy of like a matthew quick story um i mean one of the recurring themes is just like going back to your, your home, your, your, your family of origins home, or just your family of origin, you know, Pat does that. And, um, and then Portia does that and love may fail. And, and even if that doesn't happen per se, there's always some crisis that sort of brings the family together. 
um, for better or worse. And yeah, I was just wondering like what, if that's, if that's conscious for you, or if that's just like, that's your, like, that's a catalyst that you've just used. Well, I think it's kind of a, a common trope, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about, we're going to talk about all of my novels versus one of my novels. So if we're talking about silver linings, you know, that was a time when I was living in Massachusetts, I was homesick. Um, and I was taking these trips home to go see the Eagles play with my brother. So it just kind of, it came naturally that I was writing kind of what was going on in my life at that time. Uh, but later on in my, you know, after you, you write a few books and some years go by and you start to psychoanalyze yourself and, and kind of dive a little deeper into why am I writing about these things? And I think especially when, you know, people like yourself will ask questions or you'll read reviews or you have reader responses, you start to really kind of put the the microscope on the book and <laughs> the microscope on yourself. And I'm not so sure that that's really good for writing. Yeah. Um, but everybody does it. And one of the funny things that maybe this will relate, I can tell you, I have a friend who lives in Denmark who's British and I told her we were thinking about moving to the Southwest. We we're thinking about moving to Arizona. And, and she said, Oh my, are you going to be doing a geographical? And I had no idea what that meant. You know, I don't know where she got that term. So I asked, what do you mean? And she said, well, that's when you just try to fix all your problems by, you know, moving to a different place, you know, and she was being <laughs> funny. And and I thought about it and, I, you know, I think that's what Portia does. You know, she has all of these problems that are internal and she tries to go to Florida and make them go away. But of course, you, you take all those problems with you. Right. Um, you know, and I think... I think for me and I think for a lot of people that I know, you know, are getting into forties and fifties. I was just having a conversation the other day with a friend who said, you know, you would think by the time I'm forty three or forty four, you know, I would have confidence or I'd have these things figured out and uh, you know, at the risk of sounding Freudian or whatever, you you you're just constantly going back to the beginning, right? You're you're right. constantly going back to the origins of your programming in your mind. Mm-hmm. And that usually takes you home. Um, yeah. And I know, I know it does for me, you know, as I, I think about writing about mental health and, you know, writing about, you know, either metaphorically or directly about my struggles, my struggles with anxiety and depression. Uh, some of that is probably genetic, but a lot of that was probably learned too. Well, I know mm-hmm. it was learned. And so going back home and going back to the origin of, you know, Matthew Quick and what makes me tick naturally takes me back. To Philadelphia over and over and over again. You know, I'm always thinking about how did I get to this place, um, and going back to to try to make myself a better person to try to figure out how I can move forward in a more positive way. Um, keeps taking me back to you know again and again back to where I came from. So mm. I think that's what a lot of my characters are doing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there does seem to be like this theme of like okay. Um, there's a recognition that like things aren't what they should be. Um, and the, the story starts out with, um, some kind of coverage of them trying to solve the problem the wrong ways, you know, um, you know, with, with Pat, it's, it's Excelsior and, um, silver linings and, um, 
I love that. I love that term um, that your friend used. What was it? What was it? Like moving away, like Porsche. Oh, a geographical. Yeah, like doing, doing a geographical. A geographical. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that's something we're always talking about of sort of like getting away from, you know, the the flying the coop. There's a there's a whole essay in this magazine about um, how we run away from our families and um, and they're still with us, but. Um, yeah, I think even David Granger, to some extent, goes to Vietnam to win yeah. his father's approval. You know, he's raised by this World War II vet. And, you know, there, there's a line towards the end of the book where he's talking about coming back from Vietnam and they go to the Poconos and his dad is sitting there smoking a cigarette with him by the lake and he puts his arm around him. And David talks about how all he wanted to do was win his, I forget the line exactly, but it was like my Nazi killing father's approval. And, mm. you know, I felt like I had it on that day. And, mm. you know, so you, you think about David going all the way to Vietnam and then coming back and then taking the psychological journey that he has to make and even going to see fire bear to, to make peace with his son. It's all, it's all cyclical. It all comes back to the origin, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's a theme as old as time. I just think that's, that's how human rhythms work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it also seems like, um, you know, there's, there's kind of this, like, I don't know, with, with, with families, there's like, a, um, there's this like mutual, like, mutual agreement that we're just going to hold on to each other's like delusions, you know, and, and <laughs> you, you see that in, um, in the reason you're alive, like David and Hank, I mean, they're so entrenched in their opinion of the other. Um, and it's, they're both wrong, you know, but there's some sort of force that when you go back home, like, and this is true for me. Um, I don't know if it's true for you, but you fall into these roles and, even if yep. you don't like the role that you've fallen into, it's easier than the alternative. It's easier than sort of like trying to fight it or um, or seek some some real truth. Yeah, and I think it's easy for, you know, the needle to go into the groove of the record, so to speak. You know, it's you go back into that habit energy. Yeah. Of, and sometimes it's very comfortable, um, but it can be it can be dangerous. You know, I'll go back to what you were talking about with uh, David and, and Hank, you know, for readers or listeners who haven't read the book, you know, one's this extremely off the charts, liberal guy, progressive guy, and one's seemingly, you know, this off the charts, conservative guy, but yet they're exactly the same guy. Mm, <laughs> you know, if, you, if yeah. you look at them metaphorically, you know, they're father and son, and they both have this same programming of stick to the dogma that, you know, their team, what they believe in, in, in this extreme way. And it's just that one has replaced, you know, one philosophy with the other, but they're still running the same program in their mind, which I find fascinating, especially, um, you know, we all have that friend who will complain bitterly about their father or mother and, you know, how they don't get along. Then you meet the father or mother and they're exactly like your friend. Like, they're like the same. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I find that happens a lot. And um, I think in families too, I know in my family, there are things that, you know, drive me crazy about certain family members. And, 
you know, if you take a step back and you, you really think about it, usually a lot of times it's human nature that the things that drive you crazy about people are the things that you're you're not acknowledging in yourself. You know, so I think a lot of times, you know, with family, it's it's tough because you're looking into a lot of mirrors when you're around family. Yeah, for sure. That can be comforting because it's your tribe, and but it also can remind you of, you know, the things that you need to work on too. And yeah. they all know where the buttons in your brain are because they have the same buttons. Right. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, that's kind of the same with Pat and his dad and the Eagles. You know, it's like there's so much solace in like in having this like external, I mean, family, you know, this sort of surrogate family to be a part of in the Eagles. But then also they they're so similar and yet they, you know, for much of the story can't stand each other, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, Pat Senior's father is obsessed with uh, the Eagles to the point where he can't see what's going on with his own son. Like he can't right. see that he's hurting his son. And I think Pat is obsessed with his ex-wife to the point that he can't see what's really going on with his ex-wife and that like mm. his obsession is not, not healthy. So again, you have two, you know, people read silver linings and you know, a lot of times people say, I hated the father. Like I hated him so much. And, you know, that's fine. Anybody can have that response that they want, but it's, it's kind of ironic that you, you don't see those, they're overlooking those seeds in Pat because he's telling it from a first person point of view. Mm-hmm. If the mm-hmm. story was from Pat's dad's point of view, you might be really sympathetic to the dad and left yeah. Pat, and, you know? Right. But again, it's that they appear to be very different people because Pat, the, the narrative, the, the son is telling the story and you're naturally going to take his side of it because he's telling it in a way that, that makes him seem really sympathetic. Mm. You know, for me, when I'm writing, I always write first person narr- narratives that are unreliable narrators. And I'm always trying to play with those threads. And I'm always really happy when people people pick up on that. But you always run the risk of people not realizing that an unreliable narrator isn't necessarily telling you the truth about everything. So oh my gosh, to totally. Of, yeah, you yeah. got to read between the lines a little bit. Yeah. Well, there's a line in, in Silver Linings that gets quoted a lot on the internet, and it, it's something like, uh, you need to make time for family no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, you know, out of context, that seems like, you know, kind of a hallmark line. You could put that on a card. It makes everybody feel good, you know, but <laughs> I always think it's ironic because Pat is the way that he is because he's around his family. So yeah, much, you know? yeah, it's, exactly. It's his family is not a healthy place for him to be. And a lot of his problems are because he's so enmeshed in his, his, his family drama programming and it's it's not taking him to a good place so i always kind of chuckle a little bit when people post that as is a positive thing because out of context it seems like this very positive statement to make but if you take a look at pat's life he the thing that he needs is someone to break him out of his his rut with his family which yeah. is why you know tiffany is this unsexy alternative you know she's not the thing that he wants at all in the movie you know, in the, in the movie, Excelsior's from the movie, That's that, that word never even appears in the book. Yeah, right. Um, but w- in the movie, you know, it's kind of this, this love story, you know, between Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. But in the book, Pat's, Pat's not really interested 
in Tiffany at all sexually, like at all. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no sexual tension. They're just these broken people that find each other and they form this kind of surrogate family, almost in a more, not like in a brother sister way, but in, in a way that's, that's definitely not about sexual attraction. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding and need. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sell as well in Hollywood. So I understand, <laughs> but yeah, in the book, I think that's a really important distinction that he's got to go and find his own family. He's got to leave, you know, the, the mom and dad and he's got, he, he can't make it work with his brother. He's got to go find this other person. Yeah. Create this new surrogate family that's going to help him heal. Yeah. Yeah. I want to come back to that because like, I mean, that seems to be a recurring theme too for you that a lot of times, you know, the trauma and, you know, you say like the programming of your, your immediate family, the the house you grew up in, like needs to be disrupted. And the only people that can really call bullshit on it are people that are outside of it, you know, are your characters a lot of times coming from, you know, the folks, you know, intimately the folks that you grew up with and, you know, the people that you have had time to sort of like get to know, you know, have numerous like bad first dates with. (laughs) Well, I I, I do think you draw a lot from that and it depends on, you know, which character you're talking about, Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, so, you know, if you look at my character, Leonard Peacock from Forgive Me Leonard Peacock, who, you know, takes a gun into school and is intent on murdering his best friend and himself. You know, that's the plot of that novel. I, I never knew anyone who took a gun to school intent on doing that. Yeah. But I, I counseled a ton of teenage kids that were, uh, you know, had suicidal thoughts or, you know, were cutting or, you know, felt alienated or felt really frustrated or angry um, mm-hmm. or furious with their parents. So, you know, th- that character wasn't based on any one of them, you know, it was based on none of them. You know, it was a fictional character. But my work with teenagers largely informed my making of Leonard Peacock. Yeah. Um, and then when you think about David Granger, you know, David Granger is a fictional character, but it was largely informed by the relationship I had with my Uncle Pete, who was a Vietnam vet, and my grandfather, who was a World War II vet. And my relationship with both of them, who were probably the, the two most important men in my life and were conservatives, like outspoken, um, but also very nurturing and caring people. You know, the thing about my Uncle Pete was he would, anytime he would call me on the phone, he would, you know, call me the, the most awful, terrible names you can think of, <laughs> stuff that I can't even repeat. Like that, that just meant that he loved you. Like that was right. like, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say awful things to you unless he loved you. Right. We're on that level. Yeah, that's it. Like you're in, you know, but yeah. he was also the dude that would call me when I was depressed and say, you need to get out of your house. Like, you know, yeah. You know, I'm down at the VA and like we talk about all the time, you know, you can't hold, you can't hold up, you know, you got to go out with your buddies, you got to talk, you can't, you know, you can't beat depression. Out. You know, so he was a guy that was looking out for people, you know, a lot of mm. people would dismiss him. And that was yeah. frustrating to me that, uh, or my grandfather was a huge, huge influence on me, but he was fundamentalist, conservative Christian. You know, that's yeah. who that guy was, like big time Republican, you know, um, 
he would have hated everything progressive uh, in this day and age. But he was also the guy that when I was, you know, listening to the Smiths and the Cure and dressing alternatively and was depressed and anxious in high school, he's the guy that held my hand in breakfast every single morning and prayed for me. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was like a huge thing when I felt like there wasn't a lot of people around who cared whether I was around mm-hmm. like to have one person, um, and especially a man, make me feel that they did was was huge for me. And my grandfather, before he died, he would read my books. I never thought he would ever read them. My Uncle Pete would read them, too. These are not guys that read the type of fiction that I, that I <laughs> right. write. You know, yeah. by any stretch of it, the, they're probably not even on board with the messages that I'm putting out into the world. Yeah. Because I was part of their tribe. They were fiercely loyal to me. Mm. Um, you know, and that, that was important. So a lot of my friends that, you know, are in Hollywood or, you know, my contacts, they, they might look at somebody like my Uncle Pete, my grandfather, and, you know, laugh at them or dismiss them. And I think that they'd be missing out, uh, you know, especially in the climate of us, yeah. them that we have today, especially politically. So, yeah. you know, David Granger wasn't my uncle, but definitely inspired by or you know the writing of that was largely influenced by and also i'll say too with the the vietnam stuff a lot of the stories that my uncle told me about vietnam over the years he would tell me the same story you know dozens of times and it would always be a little bit different it would never be this exactly the same yeah and so you knew he was editing it and then i took those stories and fictionalized them so when people say, are those stories true? I, I have no way of even knowing whether <laughs> the stuff that I fictionalize. But it's, it's, it's funny because people will say things like, how much of it is true? And the joke I like to make is, well, I didn't make up the country of Vietnam, you know? And yeah. It's uh, how, how nitty gritty do you really, you really want to get? Right, right. It's a, it's a rendition of a rendition, you know? Yeah. And it's um, people who know me well like to play that game. But I I always tell the story. I was when I wrote Silver Linings, one of the characters, uh, Pat's friend is, a you know, Pat considers his friend to be a little bit whipped by his wife. You know, like that's kind of the joke, like Mm -hmm. his wife controlling him all the time. And I was really worried that my friend was going to think it was based on him and he read the book and he's like oh i gotta talk to you about this and i thought oh here it comes here it comes you know and he said this character is definitely based on our other friend and he's gonna be so mad (laughs) i just think people see what they want to see yeah totally totally yeah yeah i mean that uh, just thinking about your you know your uncle and your grandfather like and you know i have a i have a very similar family backdrop too and you know where many of the males like there's just not the same kind of like emotional vocabulary even you know and um but that's another thing about family that's so interesting is you have this like you're not of your own will like initiated into this group that you may have absolutely nothing in common with once you become like a sort of independent adult and yet like there's this love there and it sort of supersedes all the differences and you have to like 
cope with the differences in some way. And like, sometimes it drives you bananas, but like at the same time, there's something there that kind of stands over all that. And, um, it's just crazy. Yeah. I think there was a time when I was younger and maybe everybody goes through this is that you think you can edit the way you look or the way you dress or the music you listen to or what types of book you read. And then of course the, the politics that you prescribe to and, I think there's this false notion that if we do that, we some kind of help become better than other mm-hmm. people. Yeah. We'll become better than our family. Um, you know, we can kind of get a leg up in the world, but also I think more importantly, a lot of people will use that to prove to themselves that they're more worthy of love. Mm. And yeah. I think that's really a flaw that I, I know I got caught up in, you know, and, and my grandfather, you know, had a very fundamentalist view of the Bible. And I remember just getting into ridiculous arguments with him about, you know, like how, how old the earth is or, you know, whether, yeah. you know, we're dinosaurs, or, you know, just stupid things that I remember wasting hours arguing with him. him and, and now I look back on that and I was like, I wish we just talked about baseball or I wish like we went to a movie or I wish we just watched the sunset or it's yeah. just so pointless. And yeah. I think that the reason why we do that is because we, we feel we've got to go out into the world and prove uh, an allegiance somehow, you know, that we can get this love that maybe we didn't get from our family elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, I think that seldom works out. I think you've got to, you've got to, in a lot of ways, get the love from within and be mm-hmm. okay with those things. And then once you're not trying to prove that you need love all the time you can you can see the love where it is and get it you know a lot of times maybe where it was in the first place the place you're trying to run away from so if if you think back on your growing up situation. Yeah. Like, were there, were there families on TV or in books that you read that you were like, oh, I wish I was a part of that family or ones that you were like, man, I'm, my family's so much better than that family. <laughs> um, I honestly thought, and I think this is like, so I think you'll find out that marketing is like 90% of parenting. And I think my parents yeah. marketed our, like, if you call, if you need the kids to, like, take a quick shower, it's an army shower, and then it's fun, and then they get out, you know. But um, food is big for marketing, you know, you've got to call something, you know, soba noodles or chocolate noodles, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, my parents, either I either had this idyllic childhood, and or my parents marketed it so well that I really thought that we had the perfect family. Um, which is a really nice way to grow up. So my dad, and I wrote about this on the, on the site a while back, my dad, he would drive us to school and he gave us these pep talks. And I swear to you, he played a recording of the Battle Hymn of the Republic on the way to school, <laughs> glory, glory, hallelujah, on the way to school. And it started out with, like on Mondays, everybody else thinking about the weekend and what a great time they had and how they wish they still were in the weekend and they wish they were still in bed but not the klitsky girls not my maiden name not the klitsky girls they're gonna get a jump on the rest of the kids and it was a five mile drive to school of like this insane (laughs) 
pep talk. There was yelling. There was pipe smoking. There was singing. Like it was a whole deal. And we really, <laughs> I think we really believed that like, yeah, we're going to get a jump on the rest of the kids. And, um, we were top of our class. My brother came along and he decided to be class president because top of the class seemed like a lot of work. But, um, but yeah, we, we had this kind of idea that we could do things because my dad told us we could. So TV, I mean, we watched the Cosby show, which now we can't even talk about that anymore. Unfortunately, yeah, I can't. that's, that's too bad. I was kind of in that weird age of like kind of too young for the Brady Bunch, but I really, I don't know. I, re I, I don't remember other families being like something that I wish that we were. I remember when three men and a baby came out and I remember thinking how cool it would be to have three dads. Um, of yeah. So I think that speaks to like, I really liked my parents and more of that wouldn't have been a bad thing, but I also had, so I had two great parents and I had two older sisters who are 10 years older than I was. I had like four parents already. So they taught me how to, they taught me how to do stuff. And I, I was well, well looked after. And we had local grandparents, like there was no lack of, of parenting, but, um, are you older than your brother? Yes. By okay. 16 months. So, so, so you were sort of, it was almost like there were, there were two sets of siblings. There was like yes. the, the older set and the younger set. Yes. So I've done some reading about like birth order and stuff because I never really felt like I fit into any of those birth order categories because I'm a middle yeah. child and I kind of feel like the middle child from the youngest daughter, but I'm really the oldest in this little set. And I think that data is like, if there's more than five years between siblings, it just starts yeah. over. The birth order just starts over again. So I was like an oldest to Paul's youngest. And that's kind of how our dynamic played out. So you wrote a little bit about this on the site. It's what your essay is about in the magazine, but you tell your story about um, your sister and, and this weird situation that you all have where um, one family member is, is estranged and there have been you know efforts to reach out on both ends and, and it's really difficult. But what's more difficult is sort of dealing with things just being where they are and not being completely changed except for just the hope for Jesus, you know? Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier and, and you were just sort of mentioning how, you know, despite the fact that um, you have this, this painful part of your family story, you also, you also had such a great childhood that it sort of made you a little skittish to like start a family of your own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I did feel like, you know, the pep talks, <laughs> <laughs> and all of that also led to this idea that we kind of have like this action plan when something goes wrong and there's no action plan right now with the sister that, that isn't, there's just kind of this asterisk, like this holding place mm -hmm. of what was there is, is still there, but it's not part of, part of our everyday life. So that's hard. But yeah, the, the childhood growing up, I was skittish about starting a family because I thought there's no way I can provide that level of amazing childhood to another generation. We lived in the middle of nowhere on 11 acres. All of our neighbors were Amish. Like, I, I can't live like that now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a job. I don't have some weird HGTV job where I can, like, curate butterfly larvae and make a you million dollars. You could do that, Carrie. I could, I could do that. I could, ins I could influence everyone on Instagram and make a million dollars. I, 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 I couldn't sustain that. 
So right. we live in a city, and I was, I was just like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I can do this. But my kids have a different childhood than what I have, but I would, they still have a really great life. So growing up in the middle of nowhere is great, but we went to the zoo like maybe once a year. Um, we went to big concerts or plays when we were on vacation, but we didn't get to do that like on a regular basis. My kids saw Hamilton when it came to Houston. I mean, they, they, they are not suffering. Um, we get to go to the symphony. We get to go do all these great things in Houston that I wasn't really putting in part of my calculation of what's necessary for a really great childhood. So I think it's not so much where we are, or what we, even what we provide, but we just love them. And so I, I think that's, that's the ingredient that I wasn't really looking for. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting too. Like so many people, uh, have like a completely different experience where like home life when they were kids are the exact reason why they're not having kids. Yeah. You know? It's like, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to re like, I'm worried that I might recreate what, uh, yeah. what I lived through as a kid. Um, but instead for you, it's like, it was so good. Like why even try? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was really lucky. Um, um, and my husband feels the same way. He was really lucky and, um, his parents supported him in ways that he will say that they didn't always really understand. His dad was an electrical engineer and my husband has a divinity degree from Yale. And so the two worlds, <laughs> like just didn't, Neil's really good with words and, um, and Neil's dad was really good with engineering. And even though Clyde, my father-in-law, didn't fully understand Neil's world, he sacrificed so much to support that. And that's what we want to do for our kids too. That we don't, I do not understand the Marvel Cinematic Universe, by the way, um, but that's what my kids are into right now. And um, it's, it's an interesting thing to love somebody and not fully understand them. But that's yeah. the gift that our parents gave to us, too. So that being said, are there things that you and Neil find that you do that are totally like your parents, both um, both great and obnoxious? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So my mom, my mom has little phrases. Um, I'm so much like my dad, so that's not hard to see at all. Like, I get really enthusiastic about things. I'm all about the pep talk. I'm all oh, yeah. about, like, let's plan the next thing, and I'm super out there and so it's kind of um interesting to hear my mom come out of my mouth because i don't see my my personality is just so much more like my dad but my mom will say things like gently but firmly and gently but firmly means like that could be shutting the microwave door that could be telling your boss that you're quitting that could be like <laughs> <laughs> how to like train a dog it's all you know gently but firmly and um, she also had this thing, though, where, like, there were four of us. Oh, someone was always crying, right? Like, someone's always pissed off. Someone's mad yeah. about something. And usually one of us would say, it was funny. I was trying to be funny, which is stupid. But she would say, it's only funny if everybody laughs. And I'm like, now I'm like, that's just patently false. Like, that's not even yeah. true. Like, There's if everybody... There's one person who isn't laughing. <laughs> right, right. And it's usually her. I was like, no, no, I'm not going to buy into that one. It's only funny if everybody <laughs>, laughs. And so I was like, no, no. But I have told my kids, like, I've, I'm, like, on this crusade of 
not laughing at everything that my kids think is funny because I don't want to send out two more white guys into the world that think they're God's gift to humor. Like, I'm not going to do that. So it's my gift to the world that I only laugh if it's genuinely funny. So they have to work <laughs> for it. And people think I'm really mean. They're like, that is terrible. You should laugh at all their terrible knock-knock jokes. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So as a result, I've had these kids that have had to really, like, fine-tune their humor. And they, they're actually funny now. But I'm not going to laugh at the stupid jokes. So Man. it's my version good... of it's only funny if everybody laughs. Yeah, that's really good advice, actually. Like, um, I mean, that kind of fits in with so much other parenting advice that sort of says, you know, you need to sort of let like you need to not be, you know, a different person with your kids. Like, just don't laugh at their jokes if they're not funny. Not funny. I talked to a social psychologist, too, who said this actually <laughs> like backed up by research that false praise is the worst the worst yeah. thing you can do. Yeah. Like, well, oh, I mean, the Alfie Cohn interview pretty yeah. much says that too. So yeah, false praise um, is the worst. And so I was like, well, I'm not gonna laugh if it's not funny. Yeah. So, selfishly, I just don't want to hear the bad knockout jokes. But you know. So as you probably would have guessed, like you're not even close to the only um, essay in the magazine that has to do with like family just being like a really. Um, a really great receptacle for pain, you know, uh -huh. like we have a lot of like funny stories about our families and, um, and there's so much love there, but it's like, it's always seems to be sort of hand in hand with death and pain. And who are we at, at Mockingbird? If not people who always go, go back to the pain. Right. Um, but yeah, you were saying, um, earlier that, that, with your first child, Neil's dad died pretty recently after he was born. Yes. So Neil's dad, um, Clyde, is just this lovely man. And for as different as they were in their interests, all of a lot of Neil's gentleness and sweetness comes from both of his parents. But um, his dad was just this very gentle, sweet man. And he had Alzheimer's. Right around the time that Neil and I met, he had started to show signs of dementia. And so we knew that this was coming. But he died when Rowan was six weeks old. I think he stopped walking on the day that Rowan was born. It was just very, very rapid around that time that his decline just was just kind of just happened all at once. And I'm sure that all parents feel this in some way. I think it was just like a magnifying glass was on it for us that we brought home this sweet, tiny, perfect human being at the same time that we were saying goodbye to this sweet, sweet man. We were far away, but I just remember looking at Rowan and thinking, he's going to die someday. And mm -hmm. all the things in between that of, you know, he's going to, he's going to get bullied in middle school and he's going to have pain in his life. And mm -hmm. it's not that I didn't know that before, uh, but it was really, it really brought it home kind of all at once. And mm -hmm. that was a really, it was really hard, but it was also the, the best thing we could do when Neil's dad died. We flew to Neil's home in North Carolina and brought this baby who had just started smiling into this terrible grief and everybody just he just lit up a room like he my mother-in-law would just sit and rock him for hours mm. and it was so comforting and I had to I had to nurse him in the funeral home which was an experience uh, my dad was a hospice chaplain so I'm very comfortable in funeral homes and with death and 
the the woman who was kind of ushering everyone around, I just asked her if there was like a quiet room where I could go nurse the baby. I was just six weeks old. I still didn't know what I was doing. Um, and she put me in this room with like a dozen empty coffins in it. <laughs> she was really <laughs> apologetic about it. And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. It's fine. She's like, I promise. <laughs> She's like, I promise they're empty. And I thought I would rather be in here with a dozen dead people than trying to nurse him in front of a hundred live ones. So I'm good. I'm fine. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to talk to me about postpartum weight loss. Like it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was kind of this full circle moment of here we are. Like I have a baby mm. in a funeral home. Um, and it's interesting too, and I think this is just a coincidence, but, um, we see so much of Clyde and Rowan. Um, mm. if there was ever an 11 year old electrical engineer, we have one and wow. his gentleness and his sweetness and his intellect. Um, so that's been really cool to see, but at the time it was just this very overwhelming emotional time. Uh, we got to the airport to go to the funeral and we had never flown with a baby. I had never. I didn't even know how to like fold up the stroller yet. I didn't know how the how all the gear worked. Neil's in this fog of grief. I can barely take off and put on his own shoes for the metal detector. And this lady, <laughs> this lady behind the metal detector, looked at me, and I must have just looked so confused. And she said, "You wait there." And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. They're gonna take away my baby because they don't know what I'm doing." And she said, you just hold your baby and I've got this. And she whipped the stroller through the metal detector and she took the car seat and our luggage. And she, she must have known on some level that we were just kind of a mess. Um, but she helped us. And so um, there's a message of hope there that like, you don't have to know what you're doing. Someone will help you. Uh, mm. Someone will know what they're doing even when your husband doesn't know how to put his shoes on. It's all right. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was just a very heavy, heavy time. It was really happy. Yeah. It, I'm sure, too, like, Neil's at a church every day. You know, he works at a church, and you're at a church probably multiple times a week. Your family is there all the time, and you see all of these other families going through both, like, these really exciting times in life and jumping through these milestones and watching them grow up and and then also go through terrible experiences and What's it been like sort of going, going through it with families um, in, a, in like a church community? Neil being a priest and you being there too, like yeah. I, I, have, I have a feeling you guys see sort of the... The gamut. Yeah, Ashley, Ben Madison's wife, Ashley called it riding shotgun, being a clergy spouse. And I love that. <laughs> so I wrote a piece about riding shotgun, I think about a year or two ago. And yeah, you see a lot riding shotgun. The most kind of recent example of that was that Neil buried two dear friends of ours and their son gave the eulogy. And I, mm. I can't give one of the eulogies and it was so profound. And their son is really a great person. He's babysat our kids and he's 19 or 21. He's very young. And so imagining my own kids in that position was hard heart-wrenching but yeah seeing kind of these ups and downs I think having kids of our own gives us a special empathy for everything that families go through I think it's possible to have that empathy without kids but I think it kind of puts us in the position of oh yeah we've been there we've been there <laughs> we've done that 
Yeah. And so our kids have this little posse at church. They all went to church camp together a few weeks ago and they have their little church buddies, which is really fun to see. A lot of times I think people expect the, the holiness to be in church, like these holy moments to be at baptism or the first time they receive communion. And those are really holy moments for us, but the kind of most holy grace-filled moments in our kind of family life have been in the middle of the night when someone's sick or when a baby can't get back to sleep or those are kind of those times that that sink in and we remember the most aren't necessarily in a pew. They're usually when we're at our lowest or when we have some other kind of big moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting like you're you gave this talk at the New York conference about being sort of a, a an innate pessimist and my wife and I totally resonated with that because I, I feel like we're sort of wired the same way. We tend to like take the, the glass half empty approach to life. And so before we got married, we heard, we heard people say things like, you know, you're going to wake up one day and look like, look right next to you in the bed and see this person that you completely hate. Like you just, you just can't stand them, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's probably possible. That could happen. And, um, and the same thing with kids, you know, like as soon as we uh, found out we were pregnant and expecting, we heard from friends who were like, oh my gosh, you're just like the first six months, you're going to look at this little creature that doesn't even look like a human and think, like, I don't feel anything for your you. Life is your life is over. <laughs> and, you might as well just hang it up right now. Yeah. That's... Yeah. And so, so, yeah, granted, I sort of, I, I think some of that stuff is most certainly true. But at the same time, um, in our marriage, we've sort of come to terms with the fact that, like, actually, I, I don't wake up and feel utter hatred for you. I'm, <laughs> I'm like surprised by the fact that every morning I get up, I'm actually pretty grateful you're around. And you, you talk about something similar, just being surprised by the just... not awfulness. Yeah. 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 People tell, yeah. People love to tell horror stories. I think about marriage, about kids, about middle age, about everything. And I don't know if that's like a, a warning system um, and anytime a parent says, nobody ever told me it would be this hard. I'm like, who wasn't talking to you? Cause everybody was telling me how hard it was and how horrible it was and how much I was going to hate my life. And I've been so pleasantly surprised, maybe because I was expecting just this really hard awfulness that it, it hasn't, it hasn't been so bad. It's actually been pretty great. So the most like concrete example I have of that is that I breastfed both my kids and I was expecting to fail so much and I was expecting both of them to reject everything that I bought like three <laughs> different kinds of specialty formula before they were born just in case everything went to hell in the middle of the night. Like that Because was, let's be honest, it's going to. It's right? going to and it didn't. Um, so I think I ended up donating the formula because guess what? My kid wouldn't have had that, wouldn't have drank that, but whatever I was providing was just fine. So I was pleasantly surprised at every turn. Everyone wants to tell you their horrible labor and delivery stories. I don't know what that's about, but it's like, go to a therapist because I don't need to hear that. And I guess it's maybe just this warning of like, it's not like it is in the movies. It's going to be horrible. 
It's not mm-hmm. that bad. Or it wasn't for me. It, it can be really, really horrible. It can be really, really scary. But I always volunteer my services as like the phone doula of two weeks before you're due. If you just can't hear any more horror stories, I will tell you the most boring labor and delivery story you've ever heard because sometimes it's really easy and boring. Boring is good, <laughs> as it turns out. So um, I was expecting, you know, 36 hours of labor in a C-section, and I got not that. And so, and the kids surprise me all the time with, um, they're just, they're easy kids. And I didn't know that that existed. I didn't know that siblings could exist without fighting. My kids don't really fight. And I, like, knock, because I'm a pessimist, I'm knocking on all the wood. Because, like... Eight years in, and I'm worried that they're going to start fighting today. But people love to say, just wait, just wait. It's going to get worse. Just wait. And that's a really hard way to go through life. I was just waiting for the yeah. other shoe to drop. Um, and I was, I, you know, C.S. Lewis has the, is it surprised by joy? Like, I'm mm-hmm. surprised by joy. I'm surprised by the easiness of it sometimes. Um, it's not always easy. But if when it's hard, it's hard in a way that we've been able to handle and mm-hmm. I know that we're very fortunate. I know that we're very privileged in that. But I think a lot of people talk about how hard it is, and not a lot of people talk about how joyful it is mm. and how fun it is. Yeah. So you mentioned this, like, refrigerator image, like, <laughs> how how there's <laughs> – which I think is so good. Like, you have um, – well, you just tell it. So, like, the refrigerator is my nemesis. Like, I – when I clean out the refrigerator, I feel at first of all at my lowest and then at my most virtuous. It's like confession. It's like when you go to confession and then you're absolved of all your sins. Like you look through and you're like, oh, I was gonna eat those carrots and they're gross now. So like all of the virtue gets drained out of you because mm-hmm. you've wasted food, there's something sticky, you don't know what it is. You could blame somebody else. It's probably your fault that like everything is just sticky and gross. And then you clean it out and you feel like the most virtuous person on the planet. You put that shit on Instagram. Like you are, it is up there for all the world to see because it's cleaned out. It's beautiful. You're absolved. And you, you know that next week you're going to go to the farmer's market. You're going to buy more beets. You're going to leave them attached. You're getting watermelon. You're getting watermelon. You're going to get the stuff that you're not going to eat all of it or it's going to shed Parsley's going to yeah. shed all over your fridge and you're going to have to start over again and it's not <laughs> going to be clean for very long. And so I feel that way about parenting because even on the best, brightest days when you're like, I didn't yell at anybody today. Every, I didn't get any calls from school today. Nobody has a runny nose. Everybody made their bed. That's not going to last. It's not going to last longer than five hot seconds and then somebody's going to have a runny nose and somebody's going to have a project due tomorrow and the other shoe is going to drop. But you know that there's this this opportunity then to clean it up and start again. Like, it's just so yeah. fast. There's, like, almost zero time to, like, rest on laurels. Right. Like. Right. There's no time to, like, pat yourself on the back too hard. Because if you're doing that, usually somebody's, like, upside down in the toilet. Like, that's just... Right. You can't... If, if things are quiet, that's usually a warning sign um, <laughs> that something's not, not well. So but I, at the same time, you like the moment you get the like the call from the principal's office, or like there's poop on the bathroom floor. Yes. That's like it's not. This is not the end. You know, it's like it's going to come back around to the clean fridge. Yeah, it's a it's the long haul. It is the long haul. Like this is not like a 
temporary project-based employment. Like this is, you're in it for a long time. And that's, that sounds really daunting, but that's really good news. Like you have another yeah. opportunity the next day to kind of unmess it up again. And I think maybe that's why babies and little kids take so many naps. Like that's the reset button. Like you sleep and then it's the reset button and you can start over. But yeah, it's, it's exhausting, but those clean fridge moments are really nice and they kind of keep you going. <laughs> kind of want to keep them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Carrie, so like within the magazine, we did this like sort of silly list of like BS parenting advice, like the, the <laughs> parenting advice that people actually give that is terrible <laughs> advice. I might have added um, to that. <laughs> yes. And I think you added a few. So seriously, though, are there any insights that like, I know a lot of people wonder like how in the world do I get my kids to actually enjoy church or mm. like want to pray in a, in a way that it's like it's coming from them, not because I told them to. Do you have any insight on that stuff? So, and as soon as I say this, someone's going to be like, but you don't have teenagers yet. And I don't. But I would say limited honesty. <laughs> That's the part of that I always, like, I always want to tell the whole story. And I think not being dishonest, but having limited honesty is the best policy. So when they complain that church is boring, I don't disagree. Like I don't, I don't disagree that church is boring sometimes. It just is. So if I started to fight with them and say, no, it's not boring. Look at how interesting those stained glass windows are. That's not really, it's not really helping. And it's not super honest of myself, but if we, you know, and I am, I haul. That's kind of like the don't laugh at, don't laugh at their bad jokes thing. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like get, give them, afford them the dignity of like your actual reaction. Right. It's sometimes boring. Sometimes people say weird stuff to us. I don't know. So I try to make it the least boring as possible. And we had my talk in Oklahoma City, like in 2016, I think. I talked about how it looks like kids aren't paying attention and people get really stressed out about that. Like they should be facing forward. They should follow along in the prayer book. They're paying attention even when it doesn't look like they are. So we have our oldest would always sit backwards in the pew. I think a lot of kids do this where they sit on the kneeler and then they use the pew as a desk, right? Like where the rest of us sit and he would be drawing, coloring or reading or whatever. And it looked for all, like, it looked like he didn't know if he was at a used car dealership or church. Like he didn't, appeared to know his surroundings at all but right. he was three he was not a particularly verbal kid and so we weren't like expecting him to repeat anything but we could hear him in his bed saying our father who art in heaven how will be dining <laughs> he said the whole thing and we had we were slackers we hadn't taught him that and so he was clearly paying attention and I hate it when people say, just relax, just relax. Actually, I saw that on my way to work today on the window of a maternity wear store. Relax. And I was like, I'm surprised someone hasn't kicked that window in yet. Right, right. <laughs> yes, through you. In July in Houston and pregnant? Like, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is something about like just letting that happen, though, where you're not like hyper on their case, you know, generaling it up in there like you will sit forward and you will. there's a time for that but when they're really little just letting them have their space and they're paying attention even when it doesn't seem like they are and they're absorbing all of that so um i would say kind of just letting them be in that space 
being limitedly honest. And then I have to put a plug in for the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It is the most beautiful gospel-based children's Bible, and it points every story, Old Testament and New Testament, points to the story of Jesus. And so I read that with my kids, but we have them in the pews at church too. And I think that it's the story of the never-ending love that God has for us. And I think if we keep on repeating that, they're going to get it. I hope. I hope. And then we rely on other people too. I've been really hyper about like controlling the message that my kids get because I just, I get really nervous about bad theology and we have to move them out of one church-based aftercare situation because it was a little little heavy on the sin. But I, I have had to let go and trust other people with my kids' theological formation too. So church camp and VBS and all of that, hearing it from other people that they love and trust is really important to us too. Is there any um, Dale Klitsky wisdom oh my gosh. that you need to pass on to the, the greater public? <laughs> he would be, he's going to be so happy if you ask. <laughs> he's going to be so happy. So he is our number one fan. But I think the real silent hero is Linda Klitsky, my mom, who, um, before my dad was even ordained, was bringing us to church. Um, he might have been he might have been sleeping in on Sunday morning, and he, she brought us to church. And she was kind of this quiet force of will that just brought us to church. And her parents died when she was really young, and so church was really important to her as a connection to them. And so she would bring us to church. And she has, all, even though her, you know, it's only funny if everybody laughs. Wisdom is a little bit suspect. Um, she's the one that told me when I thought going to law school was a mistake. She said, Carrie, God makes good on our mistakes. And, um, that's the kind of wisdom that I just have to kind of hold in my heart and carry with me everywhere. And I know my dad would agree with that. Um, my dad's the cheerleader and my mom is like this quiet force of, of wisdom really. And so I'll, I'll leave you with God makes good on our mistakes. Cause that's good parenting advice too. Yeah. Yeah, that could have been the quote for the family issue. God you know? makes good on our mistakes. What? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Or neither to go around. Yes. Yes. And I just, you know, I still get a little bit weepy thinking about that when I was bawling at law school that I made a huge mistake. And God makes good on our mistakes. In other words, you've paid the semester's tuition and you're going to stay there, Carrie. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.